Hello, it's Friday the 24th of November 2017. This is The World This Week with Carolyn Scott and Jack Foster. The Congress is due. I will preside over its processes which must not be prepossessed by any acts calculated to undermine it. First, the Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe was placed under house arrest in what we are told was not a coup, then sacked by his own ZANU-PF party, but refused to step down, only to step down a day later. We'll be getting you up to speed on the twists and turns of the Zimbabwean coup d'etat, as well as asking how history will judge the ousted president. I think he will be remembered as somebody who failed his economy, who was very stubborn, but on the other hand, someone who clearly at one point in time uh, fought for, for Zimbabwe and, and fought for its independence pretty well. The UK Chancellor delivered the autumn budget on Wednesday and despite Philip Hammond's best attempts to lighten the mood... Mr Speaker, if they carry on like that, there'll be plenty of others joining Keisha Dugdale in saying, I'm Labour, get me out of here. <laughs> I'm not sure who Keisha Dugdale is. There's not really much to laugh about though given the projections of Britain's economic growth. It's the worst growth pro- or productivity growth since, well, 1812. Today, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I will grant a presidential pardon to a turkey. Yesterday was Thanksgiving in the United States, the annual celebration of the country's colonial beginnings and, of course, food, family, football and a presidential turkey pardon. But huge swathes of the US population don't see the day as a celebration, rather a national day of mourning. This country was proud to write. We could smell their burning, rotting flesh for over a mile away. It's written, folks. In all the news about the UK budget, you'd be forgiven for missing the vote earlier this week on ditching EU human rights post-Brexit, a move which critics of Theresa May's government say is nothing short of a sop to hard Brexiters, riled up at the prospect of a potential 80 billion divorce bill. The chamber sentences Mr. Ratko Mladic to life imprisonment. The former Bosnian Serb commander Ratko Mladic, nicknamed the Butcher of Bosnia, was this week sentenced to life imprisonment after being convicted of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Now his name is synonymous with insanity and violence. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. The cult leader Charles Manson died this week at 83. We look back at the infamous killings carried out by the Manson family and the strange fascination Charles Manson has inspired in popular culture over the years. And up until not very long ago, this was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. People have definitely seen me go through some pretty tough circumstances in the political world. They've probably seen me deal with a few rats and snakes in my time. This is the first time that they'll see me with beasties and creepy crawlies. Kezia Dugdale has sparked a bonfire of controversy in the corridors of Holyrood this past week with the announcement that she'll be a contestant on ITV's I Am A Celebrity Get Me Out Of Here. We'll be seeing what all the fuss is about later in the programme. All that more over the next hour on The World This Week.
Since last week's programme, events have been shifting at a pace in Zimbabwe. It all started when Robert Mugabe sacked his vice president Emerson Ngagwa amid accusations, which now seem somewhat ironic, that he was plotting to take power from the ageing president and stand in the way of his preferred successor, his wife, Grace Mugabe. On the evening of the Tuesday the 14th of November and into the early hours of Wednesday the 15th, the military took leadership took control in Zimbabwe, placing President Robert Mugabe under house arrest and taking control of the state-run Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation. It was billed by its main actors as not being a coup, but the evidence that it is anything other than a coup isn't very compelling. On Sunday, Mugabe's ruling ZANU-PF party voted to remove him as president and party leader, giving him until Monday to step aside. Comrade Daraji Mugabe should resign forthwith from his position as president and head of state and government of the Republic of Zimbabwe and if a resignation has not been tendered by midday tomorrow the 20th November 2017 the ZANU-PF chief whip is ordered to institute proceedings for the recall of the president in terms of section 97 of the constitution of Zimbabwe. Patrick Chinamasa, Secretary for Legal Affairs in Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party. Now, despite that ultimatum which required Robert Mugabe to resign by Monday or face impeachment, Mugabe initially, at least, refused to comply, as we can hear in an excerpt from a surreal speech he gave on Monday, during which most observers expected him to formally resign. The Congress is due in a few weeks from now. I will preside over its processes which must not be prepossessed by any acts calculated to undermine it or to compromise the outcomes in the eyes of the public. Robert Mugabe speaking on Monday and apparently refusing to be pressed into resigning as president. That position would only last a further 24 hours, however, when his formal resignation was read by the Speaker of the Zimbabwe Parliament, Jacob Mudenda. I, Robert Mugabe, in terms of Section 96, Subsection 1 of the Constitution of Zimbabwe, hereby formally tender my resignation as the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe with immediate effect. Jacob Mudenda, Speaker of the Parliament of Zimbabwe, announcing on Tuesday the formal resignation of Robert Mugabe as President of Zimbabwe, ending 37 years as the country's leader, indeed the only President Zimbabwe has ever known. Unsurprisingly, international reaction to Mugabe's resignation has been far from muted, as Jack's been looking into for us. Yes, after 37 years at the helm, the resignation of such a controversial figure as Mugabe has drawn comment from around the globe. Here's Farhan Haq, the UN Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesman, reacting to that announcement that we had just there. Obviously, we take note of the announcement of the resignation, but the Secretary-General encourages all Zimbabweans to maintain calm and restraint. This Secretary-General and his predecessors have made clear that we expect all leaders to listen to their people. Uh, that is a, a cornerstone of every form of government and, and needs to be uh, uh, followed uh, in, every, uh, in every continent and in every nation. Farhan Haq, the UN Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesman, and the US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson echoed what many in the international community are now calling for free and fair elections. Ultimately, the people of Zimbabwe must choose their government. 
in our conversations today, we have an opportunity to discuss concrete ways that we could help them through this transition. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. And that call for elections was repeated in a statement by the U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May, who said that this was an opportunity to forge a new path free of the oppression that characterised Mugabe's rule. The U.K.'s permanent representative to the U.N., Matthew Rycroft, also made this statement in the wake of the news. Our thoughts are with the people of Zimbabwe and our appeal to everyone involved is to stay calm and to keep a a, a stable situation. Well, certainly the UK's view is that the best way to ensure stability and prosperity in any country in Africa is through democracy, and that involves free and fair elections regularly according to the constitution of each country. The UK's permanent representative to the UN, Matthew Rycroft. Now, having dominated Zimbabwean politics for almost four decades, Mugabe has been a controversial and divisive figure, initially praised as a revolutionary hero of the African liberation struggle which helped to free Zimbabwe from British colonialism, imperialism and white minority rule in what was then known as Rhodesia. In recent decades, though, he's been considered a dictator responsible for economic mismanagement, corruption, racial discrimination and major human rights abuses. Earlier this week, I spoke with Ayo Johnson, African affairs expert and founder of Viewpoint Africa, and I asked him how he thought history would remember Robert Mugabe. Well, um, with Mugabe, it's a bittersweet relationship. Uh, on one hand, some would like him, others would hate him. Um, clearly, he was a deci- divisive figure, and um, I think history will remember him as, uh, at one point in time, an amazing freedom fighter who fought for Zimbabwe's independence. Uh, and, and it's so ironic that the cheers and uh, and and the happiness that we saw among the crowds in the streets yesterday, uh, when he 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 announced his resignation, is reflective of that same spirit that we saw when Zimbabwe achieved independence. So, uh, uh, um, yes, yeah, so I think he will be remembered as somebody who failed his economy, who was very stubborn, um, someone who um, sort of put a thumb in, in, in the face of the West, um, but on the other hand, someone who clearly at one point in time uh, fought for, for Zimbabwe and, and fought for its independence pretty well. You mentioned there the celebrations that we saw across Zimbabwe following that news that Mugabe had resigned, and it did truly mark the end of an era for the country. But what lies ahead now for Zimbabweans? Is this the dawn of a better, more democratic age, or is there the danger this could be more of the same, but just with a change in personnel? Well, most definitely a change in personnel, but fundamentally is the fact that ZANU-PF is still in power. They would want to maintain that power, and it all depends on what form ZANU-PF takes. If it continues with what we've seen with uh, Mugabe over the last uh, since 1980 up until now, um, ZANU-PF uh, clearly wanting to retain power at all costs, preventing the opposition from um, uh, having any form of uh, uh, competition uh, when it comes to elections, uh, and very much uh, suppressing its population, not to mention the poor governors that we've spoken about. Uh, uh, if that's the case, then I think Zimbabwe will be a, a sorry case. It's already becoming a basket case on the Mugabe, and for it to be um, accepted back into the international fold, it has to show greater reforms, uh, and it has to show that it can have free and fair elections uh, with a timetable that everyone can work towards. So uh, until ZANU-PF can demonstrate that it's changed, it means that it's a new ZANU-PF, a ZANU-PF that's open and accountable, 
uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult to tell. Uh, ZANU-PF will determine the future of Zimbabwe moving forward, no doubt about that. Just finally, uh, do you think we're likely to see um, elections brought forward in, in the wake of what's happened? Well, no, it's already been expressed that um, the new president would serve the term of the previous president. So uh, that's very disappointing. Uh, I'm afraid elections would not happen until next year at the very earliest, and we're not sure... Um, whether the opposition would accept that or whether there will be further calls internationally which would apply the relevant pressures mm. on Zimbabwe for them to bring elections forward. Uh, these all remains to be seen. These are all uh, balls in the air for, for which we have no answers right now. Ayo Johnson, African affairs expert and founder of Viewpoint Africa, speaking with Jack earlier this week. Now, it's undeniable that Mugabe's legacy will be defined by many Zimbabweans by his record on human rights. Yesterday, it was announced that Robert Mugabe has been granted immunity from prosecution and assured that his safety will be protected in Zimbabwe under a deal that led to his resignation. He apparently told negotiators he, negotiators, sorry, he wanted to die in Zimbabwe and had no plans to live in exile. But many believe that Mugabe should be tried for crimes he allowed or was directly complicit in during his presidency to allow for justice to be delivered. A statement released this week by Salil Shetty, the Secretary General of Amnesty Inter- International, said during 37 years of President Mugabe's leadership, tens of thousands of people were tortured, forcibly disappeared or killed. President Mugabe condoned human rights violations, defended criminal actions of his officials and allowed a culture of impunity for grotesque crimes to thrive, end quote. Now, just a few short weeks ago, you may remember that we had a report from the Scottish Green Party conference and that at that conference, the Zimbabwe-born co-convener of the Scottish Greens, Maggie Chapman, gained support for a motion denouncing the UN's World Health Organization for, announ- for appointing Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. Maggie Chapman summarised why that appointment was perhaps ill-thought-out in a party motion. The Scottish Green Party is appalled that the World Health Organization has appointed Robert Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. Mugabe has led Zimbabwe for the last 37 years, during which time there has been significant human rights abuses, the country's economy has crashed more than once, and there is a dire lack of decent health care and provision for so many Zimbabweans. He is in no way a suitable ambassador, least of all for the World Health Organization. The Scottish Green Party denounces Mugabe and his actions and denounces the World Health Organization for making such a callous decision. Robert Mugabe is a tyrant. I've met people in Zimbabwe who have have been beaten up and tortured by his thugs. I have met family members of those who were murdered because they belonged to a different tribe uh, to Mugabe. And I've witnessed firsthand the very dire conditions that so many Zimbabweans are facing with very little access to food, little access or no access to any kind of health care, and certainly no dignity or support provided to them by the state that Mugabe leads. He is not fit to be an ambassador. The World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves, and I urge you to support this motion. Thank you. And the World Health Organization did U-turn on that position pretty quickly amid international outcry. The incoming President Emerson Nangagwa was Mugabe's right-hand man for years. Um, is it likely that he'll take into this leadership a similar legacy? Well, that is the very point that human rights groups have been highlighting this week. Human Rights Watch's Dua Mavinga, the director of the African division, said, we should be mindful that Mnagagwa, the military leadership and Mugabe are cut from the same cloth. These are comrades and allies who have just turned on each other, but whose systems remain and continues. You're listening to The World This Week. 
on the programme, the UK Chancellor delivered the autumn budget on Wednesday and despite Philip Hammond's best attempts to lighten the mood... Mr Speaker, if they carry on like that, there'll be plenty of others joining Keisha Dugdale in saying, I'm Labour, get me out of here. <laughs> There's not really much to laugh about given the projections of Britain's economic growth. It's the worst growth pro- or productivity growth since, well, 1812. Today, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I will grant a presidential pardon to a turkey. Yesterday was Thanksgiving in the United States, the annual celebration of the country's colonial beginnings, and of course, food, family, football, and a presidential turkey pardon. It's a thing. But huge swathes of the US population don't see the day as a celebration, rather as a national day of mourning. This country was proud to write We could smell their burning, rotting flesh for over a mile away. It's written, folks. In all the news about the UK budget, you'd be forgiven for missing the vote earlier this week on ditching EU human rights post-Brexit, a move which critics of Theresa May's government say is nothing short of a sop to hard Brexiters, riled up at the prospect of a potential £80 billion divorce bill. The chamber sentences Mr Ratko Mladic to life imprisonment. The former Bosnian Serb commander Ratko Madic, nicknamed the Butcher of Bosnia, was this week sentenced to life imprisonment after being convicted of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. His name is synonymous with insanity and violence. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. The cult leader Charles Manson died this week at 83. We look back at the infamous killings carried out by the Manson family and the strange fascination Charles Manson has inspired in popular culture over the years. And up until not very long ago, this was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. People have definitely seen me go through some pretty tough circumstances in the political world. They've probably seen me deal with a few rats and snakes in my time. This is the first time that they'll see me with beasties and creepy crawlies. Kezia Dugdale, or Keisha Dugdale, according to Philip Hammond, has sparked a bonfire of controversy in the corridors of Holyrood this past week with the announcement that she'll be a contestant on ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. We'll be seeing what all the fuss is about later in the programme. We'll be back with that and much more after a little word from our friends over at Common Space. owned by a political party. It's not owned by multi-millionaires. It's not something that's even part of state broadcasting. Because of it, it's away from all of those things, its trustworthiness has grown. There is a quality and an intellectual rigour. You know, with a media a bit obsessed with the royal family and the Kardashians. Common space is the future. I think they have the tools to stay the course and to continue to contribute to our much more engaged political and media landscape. We make sure Scotland's voice is heard on the international stage. For me, what Common Space does really well is the way that it reports on women's issues, like violence against women. They show that it doesn't matter the budget you've got or how many reporters you've got, the key to reporting violence against women in an informative way is taking the decision to do it responsibly and with care.
This is The World This Week from Friday the 24th of November. On Wednesday, the UK Chancellor Philip Hammond delivered the autumn budget. And Carolyn has this report. coined the make-or-break budget on Wednesday morning and UK Chancellor Philip Hammond wasted no time trying to lighten the mood with some standard budget day jokes. Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm being tempted with something uh, a little more exotic here, but I'm going to stick to plain water. But I, I did take the precaution of asking my right honourable friend to bring a packet of cough sweets just in case. At this point, Prime Minister Theresa May handed over a packet of cough sweets and hilarity ensued. And, of course, jokes at the Labour Party's expense, some standard budget day chats. But, Mr Deputy Speaker, apparently not everyone shares the view that falling debt is good news. I've heard representations from the party opposite suggesting increasing the debt by £500 billion. Taking us back to square one, wasting an extra £7 billion a year on debt interest. Mr Speaker, if they carry on like that, there'll be plenty of others joining Keisha Dugdale in saying, I'm Labour, get me out of here. Even inspired jokes about driverless cars. Mr Deputy Speaker, there is perhaps no technology as symbolic of the revolution gathering pace around us as driverless vehicles. me to make that joke about the Labour Party again, Mr Deputy Speaker. Mr Deputy Speaker, I know that Jeremy Clarkson doesn't like them, but there are many other good reasons to pursue this technology. So today, we step up our support for it. Sorry, Jeremy, but definitely not the first time you've been snubbed by Hammond and May. A barrel of laughs? Well, no. Not even the most inspired puns could have lightened the reality of what the budget means for the British public. The meat of the budget came in what Chancellor Hammond referred to as the boring bit with long economic words, a throwback to a couple of weeks ago when someone in the Cabinet had got cross with his colleague Michael Gove for using long economic words, trying to send a message that Gove is ready to take over from Hammond should the budget somehow go badly. But perhaps the Chancellor was hoping that by suggesting the next bit was long and boring with all the economic words, maybe people would switch off. Maybe people wouldn't pay too much attention, because what he then launched into was not exactly a glowing report of the UK's economy under the Tory government. Figures from the government's independent forecaster, the Office for Budget Responsibility, or OBR, shows the UK's economic growth is going to fall over the next three years, despite the spring budget nine months ago showing a year-on-year rise in growth. Reaction to the budget has not exactly been easy reading, not for the government, but also not for those already struggling to survive with the austerity measures that have been in place over the past years. On Thursday, the think tank The Resolution Foundation released their response to the budget, stating that the UK is on course for the longest fall in living standards since records began in the 1950s. Their analysis suggests that the autumn budget will drive up inequality, with the poorest third set for an average loss of £715 per year over the next five years, while the richest third will gain an average of £185 per year. The Resolution Foundation also said that the downgrading of the UK's economic growth meant that household disposable incomes would now fall until 2020, and over the next five years, the UK will be one of the weakest growing major economies.
Yesterday I spoke with the journalist and political analyst Jim Ensom and began by asking if rather than a make or break budget, was this not rather a doom and gloom budget? Well, absolutely. He had nowhere really to go because on literally on the morning that he finalised, you know, the budget that he was going to give at lunchtime yesterday, it was announced that uh, productivity growth is going to fall to 0.1% by the end of 2017, which basically means that it's the worst growth pro- or productivity growth since well, 1812, <laughs> basically, as a result of which the economy is on course to be 42 billion pounds smaller in 2022 compared to the March 2017 forecast. And there are a lot of people saying that basically um, he, he's, you know, despite everything that he's trying to do, the, the economy is not in as good a shape as he wanted it to be. It gave him very, very little place to go in the budget. Um, he had to do something about housing and he's done what little he can. And what little he's managed to do for the universal credit by bringing it forward to only a five week, um, it, it's is doing very, very little to the average working person in the street. Well, perhaps with Brexit, some of this was almost inevitable. But just where does this leave the Chancellor now? Well, in all honesty, you know, he was lucky to be Chancellor (laughs) to give it. Because if you remember, he's had an absolute series of rows with Prime Minister Theresa May. And all this does is shows up the splits within the Conservative Party over Brexit. Talks for which are going nowhere. Hammond had backed Remain in the Brexit referendum. But when the UK decided to leave the EU, said he would support withdrawal. But he's at odds with Theresa May's cabinet over how that should happen. Uh, The thing is, Carolyn, that the UK government's position is that no deal is better than a bad deal in their negotiations in Brussels. If the UK cannot negotiate a good trade deal with the EU after Brexit, then the UK would revert to WTO, World Trade Organization rules, which cover tariffs and quotas. Hammond, however, said that a no deal would be a, quote, very very bad outcome for Britain. He said there would be dire consequences. And this, of course, you know, he's a soft um, Brexiter and he's at odds with the others. And, you know, he wouldn't have been Chancellor if May hadn't bombed the June 2017 election. She wanted to sack him, but couldn't. And now she's in a weakened position, so she can't get rid of her Chancellor and the Chancellor, and she don't agree on Brexit. Um, the interesting thing he did say in the budget was he's going to make £3 billion set aside over the next two years to prepare the UK for every possible outcome. That means, Caroline, that's politics speak for if we don't get a deal. Um, £3 billion, will it be? enough but at least it's more so at least she's got her way in that brexit talks resume next month in december the december european council meeting Theresa may's got to go there and it's her last chance to persuade her colleagues um to let britain move on to talking about a trade deal it's by no means certain what's going to happen there the chancellor didn't have very much wiggle room to do. He couldn't do very much, but he's done the best he can in a doom-laden world, which is what the Resolution Foundation is saying. Well, Jim Ensom, always a pleasure. Thank you very much.
The journalist and political analyst Jim Ensom speaking to Carolyn there. Carolyn, obviously there's a lot that could be discussed from the autumn budget, but there was one very important announcement for Scotland, which has caused a bit of a stir in Holyrood this week, wasn't there? Yeah, the Chancellor announced that Scottish Emergency Services will no longer have to pay VAT as of April 2018. They currently are the only police and fire rescue services in the entirety of the UK that do pay VAT. But what sparked controversy in Scotland was the fact that Philip Hammond said that this decision was thanks to the hard work of all of the Scottish Tory MPs who'd persuaded him. And this has, of course, been a long-running In fairness, I'm sure he probably does listen to the (laughs) Scottish Tory MPs more than he listens to the other Scottish MPs. And that was what caused a little bit of anger of people saying, do you only listen to MPs from your own party and nowhere else? But um, many SNP MPs and MSPs were angered, to say the least, by this. This has been a long-running SNP issue. It's been raised in Prime Minister's questions and in First Minister's questions more frequently in the run-up to the budget and been subject to parliamentary debates. Um, The Myrtle Fraser the Tory MSP just a few weeks ago said in First Minister's questions that there was no basis for a refund or for taking away the eligibility to pay VAT for the Scottish services. And yesterday in First Minister's questions, he prompted this reminder of his words from the First Minister. Murdoch Fraser. Thank you. The Chancellor announced yesterday that Scottish police and fire services can now reclaim VAT thanks to pressure from 13 (laughs) Scottish Conservative MPs at Westminster. But Will the First Minister now accept that this was a mess entirely of the SNP's own making, that they went into the police and fire services mergers with their eyes fully open, fully aware of the consequences of their actions? And so would you now like to take the opportunity to thank a Conservative Chancellor for clearing up the SNP's mess for them? First Minister. I increasingly just love it when Myrtle Fraser gets to his feet. It's like Christmas come early every week. Let me remind the chamber what one Myrtle Fraser, I'm assuming it's the same one we've just heard from there, said about a police and fire VAT refund not eons ago, but just a matter of weeks ago. On the 31st of October 2017, Myrtle Fraser got to his feet in this chamber and said, there is no justification for a VAT refund for police and fire. I think it was really, really, really cruel of his Tory colleagues at Westminster to prove him so completely and utterly wrong. But then he is often completely and utterly wrong. You know, yesterday the Tories were forced to concede that they've been wrong all along on this issue. And you know, see, see this argument, this argument that it's all because the SNP pursued a policy of a single police force. You know the flaw in that argument for the Tories? The Tories proposed a single police force as well. So this argument that it's all a mess caused by SNP policy kind of falls apart when the Tories had exactly the same policy all along. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon responding to Murdo Fraser in First Minister's Questions yesterday. You're listening to The World This Week from Friday the 24th of November 2017. listeners will be all too aware that it was Thanksgiving yesterday, but whilst the annual American holiday is often billed as a celebration of unity and multiculturalism, not everyone sees it that way, as Jack's been finding out. A joyous day, yesterday 
to remember Yesterday in November Thanksgiving Yesterday, being the fourth Thursday in November, was Thanksgiving Day in the United States. Officially, it marks a celebration of the first Thanksgiving by the Pilgrim settlers after their first harvest in 1621. But it's become just as synonymous with what's known in the US as the holiday season and a peak time for retailers in the US. This Thanksgiving, your butterball turkey's so juicy, people will swear you just stepped off the Mayflower. Yeah, you Plymouth Rock this dinner from here to Jamestown. And it hardly cost you a shilling because you went to Walmart. Here's to the day that may not always be flawless, but it's always perfect. Happy Thanksgiving from Publix, where shopping is a pleasure. Popular culture in the United States around Thanksgiving can be seen in the slew of Thanksgiving special commercials, pushing the traditions of food, family and football. There's also, for reasons which escape me, the tradition of Adam Sandler's Saturday Night Live Thanksgiving song. A turkey for me, turkey for you, let's eat turkey in a big brown shoe, love to eat the turkey Adam Sandler performing the inexplicably popular and undeniably irritating Thanksgiving song on NBC's Saturday Night Live. In fact, there's a whole host of weird traditions associated with Thanksgiving, long before you actually get to what the day is supposed to be about. For example, every year, the president pardons one turkey, which would otherwise have been destined for a dinner table. Here's Donald Trump doing that on Tuesday. Today, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I will grant a presidential pardon to a turkey. I kind of feel as though there should be a joke in here, but I'm just going to let it hang there. I'm pleased to report that unlike millions of other turkeys at this time of the year, Drumstick has a very, very bright future ahead of him. Upon being pardoned, Drumstick and his friend Wishbone will live out their days at Gobbler's Rest. Beautiful place. It's custom-built It's an enclosure on the campus of Virginia Tech, tremendous school. There they'll join Tater and Tot, the two turkeys pardoned last year by President Obama. Mayflower, Mayflower, sailing proud and free. The so-called first Thanksgiving refers to the one held by pilgrim settlers who landed at Plymouth Rock. The national holiday's beginnings can be found in the supposed feast held in the autumn of 1621 by the pilgrims and Native Americans to celebrate the colony's first successful harvest, widely regarded as the beginning of the first chapter of the United States of America. Except that that narrative is heavily disputed, and whilst many see it as an opportunity to celebrate the dawn of a new nation, huge swathes of Americans don't see it that way. They see it as a national day of mourning, a glorification of the cultural genocide and the conquest of Native Americans by colonists. The United American Indians of New England held its 48th National Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Massachusetts yesterday, that being home to Plymouth Rock, the mythical landing point of the Mayflower ship in 1620, and the supposed 
home of that first settlement. We had hoped to speak to one of the organisers of the National Day of Mourning, but unfortunately no one was available in time. But we can hear a recording of Native American activist Anawan Whedon speaking at a previous National Day of Mourning a few years back. The Pequot people were burned alive in the middle of their sleep at night in 1637. Mass Bay Colony, Plymouth Colony, Providence Plantation, Mystic Seaport, all English colonies banded together to burn women and children while they slept in a village at night. They barricaded the exit. They did not allow anyone to leave. They wanted them to burn. They were proud that they burned. This country was proud to write. We could smell their burning, rotting flesh for over a mile away. It's written, folks. The few people who were able to survive that Holocaust, they were rounded up. They were sold as slaves. But before they sent them on that slave ship, they had to humiliate them some more. And they read a declaration that those people shall not ever, once again, even utter the word Pequot. They will no longer be able to call themselves a Pequot. I am proud to say, I'm a Mashtucket Pequot. This is the history, folks. Because that particular day, that particular incident, is when this country declared its second religious day of Thanksgiving. This is what we're celebrating, folks. The Native American activist Anawan Whedon speaking at the 2012 National Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Earlier, I spoke with Danielle Lucero, American Indian Student Commission Director at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I asked her what Thanksgiving meant to her. Well, when I think about the roots of Thanksgiving, um, I think about how it was created uh, when... Lincoln was president and how it was a way to bring the country together and celebrate across differences because at that time the Civil War was happening and so we wanted to unite over what was separating us. But that's really not the case still today. We're not united in America. Last year the No Dapple movement was happening and um, Native Americans were suffering at the hands of the government still. So this year I reflect on that. But I also know that it is a time when we've been granted a day off to be with our families and to share that time with each other over food that is culturally relevant to us. Uh, I know my family doesn't make the traditional Thanksgiving meal of turkey and stuffing and whatnot. We do our own native food. A lot of people, um, particularly Native American communities, um, celebrate Thanksgiving as a day of national mourning. Um, I don't know whether, whether you personally do, but what does that mean? That's that's hard for me to answer. As, so I grew up in the Southwest, which doesn't have direct ties to the Native communities that were directly affected by the genocide that occurred after this day of Thanksgiving. But I do think about that. I think about the loss of that culture and how it's sad that I don't know more about what happened to the people that were affected. Do you feel as though there's enough of an emphasis on Native American culture uh, in Thanksgiving celebrations? I 
don't think it's I don't think Native Americans are represented in the best way during this holiday. I think we're seen as um, that we don't exist anymore, or families are allowed to dress up their kids who don't identify with the Native culture in headdresses and send them to put on this play about unity between the pilgrims and the natives, and that's that wasn't the true story of Thanksgiving, and it's not the true story today. So I don't think that there's a true emphasis on what this holiday means to us. In the United States, that story of Thanksgiving uh, that you're talking about, uh, about unity, uh, will be well known by every child across the country. Outside of the United States, it's less well known. Um, there is a story about unity between Native Americans and the Pilgrims, the truth of which is disputed. What exactly is that story and how how are American children taught it? Well, this is something that I was taught growing up as well. And what's funny is I went to school on the reservation, um, but we had to follow what was taught nationally. Mm. So I grew up learning like, oh, Thanksgiving was about this time that the Pilgrims collaborated with the Native peoples to serve this dish or to serve, to share food together and a harvest that they had grown through shared knowledge. So the pilgrims came, they were sick, they needed help. Squanto, I believe it was, like went to help the pilgrims out and taught them how to grow their own food. At the end of that, the pilgrims invited the natives over to see what they had grown. And yeah, they had this feast and all was good between these two uh, different cultures, but in truth, uh, I believe that there was a native who had a relationship with the pilgrims who were in that region, and they saw that they were suffering, and they, but they also had shared enemies um, in the territory, so they had united together to survive out of, it was a survival tactic, I think, for both of those communities. But what ended up happening was the pilgrims took advantage of the natives who had just helped them survive through the winter, survive through making, learning to grow their own food and learning how to hunt. Because even when the pilgrims invited the natives back to share that feast, uh, they didn't have enough food for the amount of native peoples who had come to share a meal. So the natives had gone out and killed some uh, game and brought it back to uh, make sure that there was enough food for everyone there. And what followed that day was uh, genocide. I believe hundreds of natives were killed um, at the hands of the pilgrims. And that part of the story isn't told. No, no. We forget that part of the story. Just finally, how do you think that Thanksgiving um, should or could change? Well, for us tonight we're actually having a dinner it's called taking back the dinner where we're celebrating our indigenous foods and indigenous identities through sharing a meal and sharing space so it's about taking back what is ours and reclaiming a different day or and also still mourning those that have passed and recognizing that this holiday is built on a lie Danielle Lucero, American Indian Student Commission Director at the University of Washington, speaking to me from Seattle there. You're listening to The World This Week. You are listening.
listening to The World This Week from Friday the 24th of November 2017. The World This Week is of course brought to you in partnership with Common Space, commonspace.scot and at the Common Space on Twitter. And if you would like to make a donation or open, or open up a subscription, it's entirely optional, but it does make a huge difference to us. You can head over to theworldthisweek.co.uk And if you're interested in sponsoring The World This Week, please do get in touch with us via email info at worldthisweek.co.uk a huge thanks, of course, to those who have already contributed or set up monthly subscriptions. We very much appreciate your support. We're also on Twitter, at underscore World This Week, and Facebook. And you can subscribe to this programme via your favourite podcast app, whatever that might be. So you never need miss an episode ever again. Brexit now, of course, we couldn't let a week go by without having some Brexit chat. I simply wouldn't allow it. MPs at Westminster voted this week against transferring EU human rights into UK law post-Brexit. The amendment put forward by the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was defeated by 311 votes to 301. Now, Jack, you've been watching this story for us this week. Why is this important? It's important for two reasons, really. The most obvious one being that the government wants to throw out EU human rights law at the point of Brexit. Um, But the other is that they managed to do this only by a very thin majority of 10. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will be wondering what what the big deal is. After all, isn't the whole point of Brexit that the UK rids itself of all EU laws? Well, yes, but that's not actually the case. You see, the EU withdrawal bill, or as its supporters wanted to call it, affectionately call it anyway, the Great Repeal Bill, was designed with the express purpose of smoothing the transition of all EU law into UK law, so that, in effect, nothing would change on the day uh, that the UK leaves the EU. The idea being that any decisions about how those laws might be altered or changed would then be made after leaving, uh, as there's thousands of these laws, and you just couldn't even scratch the surface during the two-year period before we leave. So, when specific laws are being dropped out in advance of Brexit, well, you would assume that there must be a reason behind that decision. And the question is, what could that reason be? But we we all know that Theresa May has been scathing, to say the least, about EU human rights legislation over the years. I mean, should this really come as a massive surprise? Well, you could work on that assumption. And it is true that Theresa May has been less than keen on the EU human rights legislation, dating back through her time as Home Secretary as well. But critics, including Conservative MP Ken Clark, admittedly no friend of Brexit, and probably no surprise that he would have um, come down on this side, have suggested that it's nothing more than a sop to hard Brexiters who might be a little bit upset um, that the UK's so-called Brexit bill might end up spiralling to around £80 It's currently looking like it's going to be about £40 but most sensible estimates think it's going to go a lot higher than that. So a quick power grab in the name of taking back control, remember that phrase, Uh, not to mention voting down an amendment by Jeremy Corbyn does make tactical sense, um, if only for political reasons. Now, Jeremy Corbyn's motion, uh, voted down, sought to retain the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. Uh, What's the meat of that, Um, i.e. what's going to be dropped from UK law? Well, these are substantive rights covering dignity, freedoms, equality, solidarity, citizens' rights and justice. 
Um, now, I can go through some of these, um, but stop me uh, if the time looks like I can't do them all. Um, basically, dignity guarantees the right to life, prohibits torture, slavery, the death penalty, eugenic practices, human cloning, freedoms, covers liberty, personal integrity, privacy, protection of personal data, marriage, thought, religion, expression, assembly, education, work, etc. Equality covers equality before the law, prohibition of all discrimination, including on the basis of disability, age and sexual orientation, cultural, religious and linguistic diversity, the rights of children and the elderly. I will stop They're all quite reasonable them, things, it seems. They're <laughs> fundamental things. Um, I think that's the, the idea you can get from these. Um, all in all, you'd be hard-pushed to deny that this is a substantive move on the part of the UK government. And whilst they will undoubtedly be arguing that they'll be coming up with a better uh, British Union Jack-clad replacements to these, um, these rights... The intervening time between now and that happening, if indeed it does happen, could be nerve-wracking for a lot of people. And, and it's probably not um, unreasonable to assume that when that replacement uh, comes along, it could be a long time after we leave the EU. And who knows what will happen in the meantime. Well, you are listening to The World This Week from Friday the 24th of November 2017. On Wednesday, Ratko Mladic, the former Bosnian Serb military general known as the Butcher of Bosnia, was sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty of genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. The crimes he was found guilty of include the worst atrocities during the devastating Bosnian War from 1992 to 1995, the three-year siege of Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, and Europe's worst mass killing since World War II, the 1995 massacre of around 8,000 Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica. Mladic was thrown out of the courtroom shortly before sentencing for an angry outburst after his lawyer had asked for a delay to proceedings owing to concerns surrounding Mladic's blood pressure. Mr. Mladic, if you you continued like this... uh, We we, we adjourn... We adjourn... We adjourn, we adjourn, Mr. Mladic will be removed from the courtroom. Presiding Judge Alphonse Ori uh, then delivered the verdict, finding Mladic uh, guilty of 10 out of 11 charges, two of genocide, five of crimes against humanity, and four of violations of the laws or customs of war. He was cleared of one count of genocide. The crimes committed rank among the most heinous known to humankind and include genocide and extermination as a crime against humanity. For having committed these crimes, the Chamber sentences Mr. Ratko Mladic to life imprisonment. Judge Ori delivering the verdict there. The judgment marks the end of the final trial at the tribunal, which was set up in 1993 while the war in Bosnia was still being fought. Relatives of victims flew in to attend the hearing in the Netherlands, determined to see Mladic receive justice. Mladic's own family members said that they were not surprised by the ruling, with his son Darko saying that the court had been biased from the start.
On Sunday, news emerged that Charles Manson, the infamous 1960s cult leader, died in a California prison at 84 years of age. His infamous cult, known as the Manson Family, was responsible for a string of murders during the late 60s and left an unusually significant mark in the world of popular culture, as Jack's been finding out. Look at your game, girl. What a mad delusion. Living in that confusion. A singer and songwriter on the fringes of the LA music scene, Charles Manson had a history of criminal behaviour and spells in and out of jail. But what he went on to become best known for, the gruesome murders carried out by his devoted followers during the late 60s, would ensure that his name would go down as that of one of the most infamous killers in US history. What's strange about the legacy of Charles Manson, though, is that he isn't just remembered for that string of murders, but for admittedly macabre reasons, his music has found audiences in the decades since. For example, the song Look at Your Game Girl, which appeared on his album Lie, the Love and Terror Cult, released in 1970 to help pay for his defence during the murder trial, was covered in the 1990s by stadium rock band Guns N' Roses. Look at your game girl, look at your game girl, what a mad Charles Manson formed what became known as the Manson Family, a quasi-commune in California during the late 1960s. His followers committed a series of nine murders in the summer of 1969, and he was found guilty two years later of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of seven people, including the actress Sharon Tate, whose death is probably the most notorious of all those associated with the Manson Family. The Tate murders took place on August the 8th to August 9th, 1969, and claimed the lives of five people when four of Manson's followers invaded the home of married celebrity couple Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. One of those convicted of the killing of Sharon Tate was Susan Atkins. Here she is talking about that night from a television interview in 1976. I can remember seeing people just scattering in different places and running in different places and I was left sitting with Sharon Tate and she was talking to me and I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her um, as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. Susan Atkins speaking in 1976 about her role in the Manson family's Tate murders seven years on. Of course, Charles Manson, who masterminded and ordered the murders, protested his innocence until the very end in a number of surreal interviews he took part in over the years, such as this one for MSNBC's Inside the Mind of Charles Manson. I did not break the law. Jesus Christ told you that 2,000 years ago. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. I don't understand you either. But I don't spend my whole life trying to put the blame over on you because my cigarette didn't light or because something didn't work right. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm and I put on the faces and I talk and I play and hang. Yeah, it's this big act, man. In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. Charles Manson in an interview with MSNBC's Dan Abrams there. Manson apparently believed in what he called Helter Skelter, a term he took from a Beatles song of the same name. Yeah. 
For Manson, Helter Skelter supposedly referenced a looming apocalyptic race war, and he believed that the murders carried out by his followers would help precipitate that war. From the very beginnings of his notoriety, a pop culture arose around him, seeing him become an emblem for insanity and violence. Here's an excerpt from Diane Sawyer's 1993 interview with Manson for ABC News. Is Charlie Manson crazy? Well, whatever that means, sure, he's crazy as mad as a hatter. What difference does it make? You know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. So, I mean, you know, like, you know, synonymous. I mean, it's an irony, man. It's a paradox. I mean, are you crazy? Do you want to come back? Come back where? With more followers. Oh, more, come on, more followers. More. Get it, Jasper, Bonnie, Boom, Boom, Baby, Box, Old Brandon. You said you said you were the heart of the place. I had no followers. You said you were the energy of the place. I was the energy of the place only because I was there. I didn't even realize I was the energy of the place. You know, I didn't know everybody out there was dead. I really didn't. You know, I really honestly didn't know that everybody was running on what someone else said. You were not a shocked man when they came back. Every day someone's getting shot, someone's getting cut, someone's getting beat. I've lived in that all my life, woman. That don't wrinkle up my forehead. You can pile up a hundred dead bodies up in front of my cell and it don't set me to do nothing. ABC's Diane Sawyer speaking in 1993 to the cult leader Charles Manson whilst he was serving life in prison for numerous deaths carried out by his followers during the late 1960s. And Charles Manson died this week in prison aged 83. This is Jack Foster for The World This Week. will immediately recognise that music as a theme tune for ITV's I Am A Celebrity Get Me Out Of Here one of Jack's all time favourite shows he's been oh. singing this theme tune ever since the series started again every week it's not a show that's ever been synonymous with Scottish politics though until this last week that is when a surprise new contestant was announced I'm Kez Dugdale I'm best known for leading the Labour Party in Scotland and I'm a member of the Scottish Parliament you don't get to the top of Labour politics without having a tough skin a bit of resilience uh, a bit of purpose about you and I'm going to take all those things into the jungle. People have definitely seen me go through some pretty tough circumstances in the political world and they've probably seen me deal with a few rats and snakes in my time. This is the first time that they'll see me with beasties and creepy crawlies. I'm scared of birds, heights, creepy crawlies, uh, the fear of the unknown. I'd like to think that having a skill set which is most of the time looking pretty calm and pretty confident will be good in the jungle I'm banking on that uh, when it comes to the creepy crawlies it's probably fair to say that no one would have predicted that the biggest news in Scottish politics this month would be the former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale entering the reality TV game show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. But what a stooshy it's caused, hasn't it? It has indeed for our non-Scottish listeners. What's, what does stooshy mean? I just... Uh a rami. A rami. <laughs> I was going to say another Scottish word there, yeah. but it's just caused chaos. Last weekend, the reaction was just quite unbelievable. Well, I don't know if this is just a case of social media or Twitter, the world over for all um, areas of interest, but certainly Scottish politics Twitter loves nothing more than to get outraged about a thing. Um, it's a it's a bit of a competition of who can be the most outraged. But the most interesting thing is that the people that were coming up with the most outrage, and in many cases a lot, just vitriol, were Kezia's own party. 
Well, yeah, but they, this was it came at a really bad time for them. You have to remember that two. There are two points to this. Um, one, they were right in the middle of being outraged about Alex Salmond uh, <laughs> doing a chat show on RT. Uh, the controversies of which uh, will not bother going into detail. I don't because, think we. Sh- uh, he should have just given us a ring. We would have said, Alex, it's not worth the, <laughs> it's not worth the hassle. Trust us. The other problem, uh, of course, so of course that meant that they had to suddenly stop being outraged about Alex Salmond and be outraged about Kezia. Um, or they couldn't um, be, be backing of Kezia without being hypocritical. The other thing is that Richard Leonard was announced as the new leader of Scottish Labour uh, on the day that she also announced she was going into I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Fear. Coincidence? Mm, and despite hmm. her best efforts to suggest that she's doing this to promote Labour values... I remember George Galloway uh, saying similar things... Uh, and her uh, politics to do with purring. Quite a while ago. Uh, well, I remember the moment when he came out and was talking to Davina McCall uh, after his big brother stint, and she said, what was the most memorable thing? He said something, I don't know what, and she just looked at him and said, um, <laughs> no, George, <laughs> yeah. that was not it. And from no that idea. moment on, we didn't see him for years. Uh, one thing before we finish, Carl, I just want to read Derek Bateman's um, tweet about the Kezia Dog Deal story. Good story if Kezia is kidding us and turns up as president of Zimbabwe. <laughs> Well, she is now in, in the jungle and not in Zimbabwe. Um, currently, probably rolling through bugs and spiders and things to win meal tickets. But now we've just got time for our alternative markets, where we highlight figures we believe to be more important to you than all of the FTSE 100s or stocks and shares. And as winter is upon us, this week's figures relate to fuel poverty. The official figures for fuel poverty in Scotland are published as part of the Scottish House Conditions Survey with the Scot- from the Scottish Government. The most recent figures available relate to 2015. The number of households in fuel poverty in Scotland is 30.7% or 748,000. The number of households in extreme fuel poverty in Scotland is 8.3% or 203,000. Until next week, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, underscore World This Week. And you can like us on Facebook too. You can subscribe to this program as a podcast on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcast uh, application might be. App, I think is what the, the kids say these days. And if you like what you hear and would like to support the World This Week, you can make a donation or open up a subscription at worldthisweek.co.uk. And until next week, from me, Carolyn Scott. And me, Jack Foster. Goodbye. Goodbye.